Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Hello, listeners. I'm Sarah Larson, the Interim Director of the Food Finance Institute and your host for today's podcast. Today, we're digging into digital marketing with Noah from Taste Profit and Kitchen Table Consultants. I love this combination of the consultant role and the marketing expertise and think this is going to be a really exciting conversation for the entrepreneurs and consultants we work with. And so with that, Noah, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about um, what you do at these organizations, and then we can dig in more to to the digital marketing side. Sure, sure. Happy to. Um, Well, so for the last six years, I've had the opportunity to work with over 100 different farm and food entrepreneurs, help them with their business in a wide range of ways. I, my background, I had a fudge business for 10 years and I was a general manager and co-founder of that business in New Hampshire. Learned a bunch of cool things about business and, but we struggled. We lost money for the first five years. I decided to go back to school, did my MBA at a school called Babson College, which is known for entrepreneurship. Learned a bunch of great things there and also learned I didn't want to do fudge and ice cream forever. So basically decided to go and and help, uh, well, at first I, I started looking for jobs and realized I was kind of unemployable because I had been more, basically my own boss for 10 years. Um, and so I realized I wanted to start my own business and thought about what I could do to help folks and realized I probably had a lot of experience from the fudge business and the, what I learned in the MBA program that could help other food businesses. So decided to start Taste Profit and focus on marketing, digital marketing specifically, entirely for the farm and food world. And about six months into starting Taste Profit, I met Ted LeBeau, founder of Kitchen Table Consultants. Really loved what they were doing. We have basically aligned visions and goals of helping the same audience, farm and food entrepreneurs, be successful. They were doing it more in a business planning, financial management kind of way. I was more focused on marketing and e-commerce, but we basically wanted the same goal. So I worked parallel in parallel with KTC, our Kitchen Table Consultants, for five years. And then as of this year, I'm now a part owner of Kitchen Table Consultants, and KTC is a part owner of Taste Profit. So we're sister businesses, which is ideal for me. I love what I do because I love the intersection of marketing strategy and financial strategy. So well, I get to kind of practice both. FFI being so narrow in that farm and food business niche and being able to bring those best practices that you learn from all those clients you touch to taste profit has to be so valuable for, for all the folks that come to you. Yeah, I mean, I hope we've, we've definitely had some good successes. We've put them on our website, tasteprofit.com, if anyone's curious. Noah, tell us a bit about um, Taste Profit and how you work. Sure. So Taste Profit is a group of, there's a made up of a group of about 10 or 15 of us around the country, uh, some employees, some contractors, and we work directly with farms and food entrepreneurs to provide them with support 
uh, around digital marketing. Uh, specifically, we help with uh, strategy as well as execution. Uh, we have different specialists involved uh, that we pull into different projects depending on what a client needs. So we have folks that are specialized in e-commerce. And then within that, we have folks that specialize in Grazecart and Shopify and WordPress and WooCommerce. We have uh, folks that specialize in SEO, in food photography, in blogging, in PR and media, in, in direct like advertising, both on social platforms and Google. Uh, what else? We have an Amazon specialist that's entirely focused on helping folks with Amazon. So I'm not uh, hearing you say you have a Facebook specialist, Noah. So is, I'm hearing that digital marketing is more than than Facebook. Yes. I mean, well, so the, the, the ad specialists do focus on Facebook and Instagram for sure, but they also do Google ads too. Uh, but, and we do have a social media uh, specialist as well, two, two folks actually who are, who are entirely focused on social media content and strategy. So a great group of people who we all kind of work together on different projects. Uh, we usually pull together a, a particular group to focus on a, on a client project, depending on what the client needs, depending on what their existing teams already have in terms of skills, and also depending on their budgets, obviously, you know, because it's not sometimes it's not practical or appropriate for a whole team of people to help a client out when really they just need one person to give them a little bit of coaching or a little bit of support. Uh, so it, it's, it varies. Every project's a bit unique and, and different and fun and presents its own challenges because every business is a little bit unique. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? And in particular, what, how you think about a digital marketing strategy? Cause I think sometimes we get in this lane of, Oh, I need to throw $5,000 on Facebook and that's what matters. Or I need to be on Amazon. But I think where you guys excel is it's doing this bigger digital marketing plan and strategy for folks, as you kind of highlighted these experts along that continuum from e-commerce to SEO to graphic design and, Love to hear a little bit more about um, how you talk about that bigger picture digital marketing strategy and how important that is. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, it's it's critical. I mean, I, I think the common mistake that folks make is they think, oh, I got to do marketing. So we have to do some execution thing, like let's run a bunch of Facebook ads, for example. And that's the first step people take is we got to do that. Or let's put up a blog about some educational thing to try to get traffic. And, you know, they, they look at an execution based tactic in a, in a, in a kind of an isolate in isolation instead of in the context of a broader strategy. So that's one of the things that's really important to me and to taste profit is we, we start with strategy. And what that means for me is it, it marketing strategy should be informed by business strategy. So what do I mean by business strategy? Well, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? What, what level of sales are you trying to reach in three years or in five years? And are you sure that if you hit those, that level of sales with whatever margins you have on your products, whatever other expenses you have and debt service you may have, that you'll end up yielding the profits that you want personally? So I think of like your personal strategy should inform your business strategy, 
And your business strategy should inform your marketing strategy. So now, like when people come to me at Taste Profit and say like, hey, I need marketing help. I often will say, well, what are you trying to market? What are your, what are your sales goals? What's your marketing budget? What's your, and I'm not asking for the marketing budget because I want to know how much money we can extract from a client. Like I hate that. that some people think of it that way. And there's probably marketing agencies that, that take that approach. I'm asking for a marketing budget because people need to understand that if they want to grow their sales by X percent, especially if they're doing direct marketing, but even if they're doing wholesale sales as well, they have to support that growth with marketing. And that marketing spend can be on hiring internal people. It can be on paying for execution tactics like Facebook ads. It can also be hiring contractors or specialists to help. I mean, there's, you need a broad team, right, to grow a business. You can't do everything yourself. But you've got you to gotta make sure that you're planning out the financial side of marketing growth and sales growth. Because otherwise, you may not know if it's working. You may try a little $20 ad and not get a bunch of sales and be like, oh, marketing doesn't work, or I give up. And that's, that's not helpful for anyone. I love what you said there about, you know, tying, making sure folks are thinking about their marketing budget in the context of their sales growth. We always advise folks to make sure they're thinking about spending enough money to be successful on marketing when they're forecasting their income statement or budgeting. Um, and that it can sometimes be hard to figure out what the right, not sometimes the right amount of money to budget. So if my sales goals are $500,000 next year or a million dollars, is there any guidance for how to, how to think about, you know, what I might want to budget for marketing, knowing that it's this more holistic picture, not just, you know, for one part of it. Yeah. I I mean, I'll, I'll I'll share some very specific guidance and give credit where credit is due and where, where I source the guidance from. And then I'll share more qualitative guidance too. So specifically like Tara Johnson, founder of this podcast, she, I went through her, her uh, consultant training program and, you know, her rule of thumb, and I've, I've since seen this play out and make sense is, is if you really want to grow and, and we're talking about selling to retailers, selling, you know, wholesale uh, for with a consumer packaged good food product, 25% of your sales should be budgeted for marketing, which is a huge number. And it's probably going to make you unprofitable if you're not already for the first year or two while you're really trying to grow. That's why a lot of startups, they're not focused on profitability. They're focused on market share. They're focused on growth. And, and they're spending on marketing so they can acquire customers, build their brands, get bigger, get economies of scale, all that kind of stuff. So 25% of sales is one benchmark. Now, Tara also said that for just maintaining, if you just want to like keep your sales the way they are, maybe grow slightly every year with organic growth, as they call it, then maybe 3% of your sales should go to marketing. The other rule of thumb she, she shared with me is for e-commerce businesses that are doing direct marketing, a good rule of thumb is like 10% for some growth. Both are, all of those numbers are way bigger than many small businesses and many small farms are, are even thinking about spending on marketing. I've seen businesses that are spending either nothing on marketing or half a percentage of their sales on marketing or maybe 1% of sales on marketing. 
And while this may sound like, oh, sales pitch, you got to spend more marketing so you hire like Taste Profit to help them. Like that's not where I'm coming from. I don't care if you hire Taste Profit or hire anyone, but you've got to realize that marketing is an effort to build awareness for strangers that don't know you and your brand to become aware of you. And then it's an effort to educate them and an effort to ultimately share with them why they would be better off with your products, why your products or your services will help them survive and thrive. Because at the end of the day, if what you're putting out in the world isn't helping people survive or thrive, nobody's going to care or listen. You'll be ignored. And I think it, the important thing about those benchmarks is it often does make people uncomfortable to realize like, yes, when you're planning this expense, it really is, um, it can, it's a larger number than you expect. And then from there, based on your business strategy, if you're launching new products, if you're going into, you know, 500 retail stores in June, because you were successful with a large chain, it's going to fluctuate where some of that um, marketing spend is going. But the important thing is to be planning for it being a bigger chunk than you probably think at first. And then that's where you start to really dig in to the strategy with someone on your team or someone like Noah. And I know, Noah, you kind of mentioned that you have a an acronym or a framework you use with your clients to help them think through some of this work. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love to run through that that acronym with you all. Um, and also just briefly want to say that in terms of what percentage of your spend should go to marketing, if you're, I mentioned, I would, I would share some qualitative points. Like if you're already growing and you look back at your numbers from last year and you're, you're only spending 4%, but it's growing, you're growing a lot. Then great. Maybe you don't need to go to 25%. You're still growing, you know, maybe for your business, your products, you could keep it at 4%. Or maybe go to 5% if you want to grow a little faster. I mean, ultimately, marketing, like every every product's a little bit different. And so if you've got something that's just going to spread with word of mouth like crazy because everyone loves it, that's going to be easier. You can do more like bootstrapping, guerrilla-style marketing that's going to be less expensive. And so anyway, I just wanted to share that, that, you know, careful with benchmarks. It doesn't mean you definitely have to follow that. It means it's a guy, it's a data point. Yeah, but you asked about the, the, the framework. So we have like a basic acronym that we help structure kind of our work and how we, how we approach working with clients and, and frankly, what we recommend to clients in terms of how they think about their own marketing. And it's, it's a funny word. It's SPEMA, S-P-E-M-A. And S is strategy. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Start with strategy. What are you trying to accomplish? What's your, what are your unique strengths? How are you going to leverage those to get where you want to go? Then once you have a general strategy, like, all right, we want to get to this level of sales. We want to sell more of this high margin product. We want to target this type of customer. We have this messaging strategy. So our message is crystal clear. Then you can move to P, which is planning. So now we have a general strategy. What is our game plan? What are we going to do? I'm not talking some big academic marketing plan. I'm talking about a concrete game plan, a high-level strategic marketing game plan that will guide your work and your marketing team's work. In other words, what are you going to do? What, what tactics do you want to implement? 
and who's going to implement them and how much money are you going to spend on the different tactics? What is your marketing calendar? What is your marketing schedule? What, what campaigns are you going to run? What are you going to do for this holiday? What are you going to do for this harvest? What are you going to do for this new product launch? You know, make a game plan for the next year. Some people suggest 16 months so that you're always a little bit ahead and doing it in advance. But that's what P for SPEMA, right? So we got strategy, we got a game plan or planning. Then you go to execution is the E in SPEMA. Then you execute, you, you do what you plan and you try to do it as well as you can with as much creativity and passion and effectiveness as you possibly can. But unfortunately, the world of marketing is really hard and not all of it will work. <laughs> and so you have to do the M. It's so important. M is measurement Be because otherwise you won't necessarily know if it's working. How do you measure marketing? Well, there's a Google that. There's a whole world out there about measuring the impact of marketing, marketing analytics, all that stuff. But at the very simplest level, what I recommend if you want like actionable insights, right? That's what this podcast is all about. Make sure your website has Google Analytics installed on it. Even if you don't look at the data right away, just make sure you're collecting it. And this is especially if you're doing direct marketing. Monitor more than just your, your Facebook likes. Monitor more than your Facebook likes and monitor more than your revenue. Mm -hmm. Marketing's job is not to grow sales. <laughs> as weird as that sounds. But yes, that's why you're probably listening to this podcast. This particular episode is hopefully you'll learn something about marketing so you can grow your sales. Like obviously, yes, the long-term goal of marketing is to grow sales. But if you think about marketing only from the perspective of, is this going to immediately grow my sales? You're going to be thinking too short term. You're going to be missing the point that there's more texture involved in marketing to do with awareness building and getting customers to move from, or getting people to move through a funnel of going from being strangers to friends to customers. And so it's, it's, they're not going to become customers immediately if they're strangers. It just doesn't work. It's not how people think. And we can talk more about that if you want. But, but back to schema, just to finish it. So you measure what's working, what's not. And, and yes, but social media likes is a thing, right? That's part of your audience size. I think of social media following as part of your business friends. But it's not the only thing, right? Instagram following is important too. Email subscribers is really important, as most people hopefully know by now. Email list is like gold. So how many people are on your email list? What was, you know, if you look last month, what is the total size of your audience? Your email subscribers, which some of them will be customers, not all of them. Your social audience. You know, if you do like text messaging, I guess you could add that. How many phone numbers do you have? What's your web traffic, right? Your audience is people coming to your website. So trying to understand the size of your audience and what's happening with your audience is part of the goal of measurement. And you can get more and more sophisticated with that kind of thing with using Google Analytics for websites at least to understand what percentage of your web traffic is converting to customers if you're selling something online.
also known as many people hopefully you already know if they're selling online is conversion rate right what is your conversion rate the industry standard from what i understand is three percent you know if your if your website's not converting three percent of your traffic to customers maybe your website needs to be tweaked or maybe your messaging needs to be tweaked and now we're talking about tweaking so now we go to the last part of schema which is adjustment so you're going to measure what's working and what's not the joke in marketing is half of marketing is effective. <laughs> Nobody knows which half. But the bad part about that is you need to know which half is working, or at least you need to do everything you can to understand what's working and what's not, whether it's link tracking or you know campaign performance, and it's a whole science. But you need to do the measurement and then think about what do you want to adjust. Maybe you're just you need to adjust your execution tactics and say let's let's try Instagram marketing or let's try LinkedIn marketing and or advertising, sorry, or, or let's try more demos and more direct in-your-face marketing because that's tried and true. Get out in front of people, something that, that's possible. Uh, or maybe you say, you know what, our game plan is wrong, right? Let's go back to the planning board, change our plan. Or maybe the strategy's wrong. Maybe you're selling more of the wrong product that nobody wants to buy because you never did enough market research at the beginning to find out if it's something that people actually want. I don't know what it might be, but you need to be prepared to adjust things. And I think the the whole idea and the ways in you're able to adjust things, which is why it's the capital S in this acronym, is that strategy. And I know sometimes we talk to folks that are really anxious about where to start and how to begin marketing or how to start figuring out what works because they want to know what works first. And I think the whole, you just need to start somewhere and reminding folks it's that trial and error and getting something on paper and saying, you know, and then measuring it and not being afraid to start. And if you think CrossFit is your audience and you do a thousand mailers and you put an ad in the magazine and you've created this plan and you can measure it and it doesn't work, you start again, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, uh, there was a, uh, I forget who it was exactly, but some very smart person was talking about if you're thinking about like dropping an egg from three feet onto a carpet, the question would be, you know, will the egg break? Well, you could hire a bunch of engineers and scientists and check the <laughs> thickness and speed and velocity and do all these calculations to figure out if the egg will break. Or if you can afford it, you can just drop the egg and find out. <laughs> right, so, so if you can afford to send a thousand mailers to who you think is your target audience to see if it has any, you know, response rate, like because in mailing you're talking about direct response marketing, right? You want them to do something when they get those mailers. You know, you want to make sure that your tactics have some way to measure them, and some you won't be able to measure unless you've really sophisticated like survey technology to ask a whole bunch of consumers whether they are aware of your brand like awareness is hard to measure right but direct response marketing is easier to measure so yeah if you can afford to take some do some experiments and get started do some tests great do that if you can't if you're like i don't want to spend however much it costs to send that many mailers unless i like you know unless i can de-risk this tactic somehow then maybe you want to go and see if you can talk to three or five or 10 people who in that target audience and ask them for 20 minutes of their time and interview them.
you know, like don't people often miss the market research step. And the, and the market research can lead to so many good insights. And by, don't be intimidated by the word market research. All I'm talking about is talking to who you think your customer is and asking them questions. Often, what do you get up to? I'm sure you guys do the same thing. Whatever. Often we just reiterate how valuable that farmer's market booth is that you're selling at or those demos you're doing where you're talking to those customers to get that those market insights to inform your strategy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest benefits of doing events and in-person sales is you, you keep your customer close and you can ask them questions. You can try out new products, new pricing, new messaging even. You can say like, you know, one day I'm going to say to everyone, hey, would you like to try a sample of my fudge? And the next day I can say like, hey, have you ever tried fudge with honey in it? And see what percentage of people take me up on my offer for a sample of fudge. That would be interesting. You know, I had one customer that, or one client, I should say, that makes uh, hot fudge and caramel sauce. And she was priced, pricing her products at, I think it was $6 a jar. And it's supposed to be a premium brand. It's high quality. And I suggested she may want to increase her price to $8. And she was really scared to do that. But then she did a test and she, she's like, okay, I'll test it on Saturday, but I'm not going to do it on Sunday if it doesn't work. I'm like, that's fine. There's nothing that says you have to have the same price on Saturday as you do on Sunday on a weekend event. Mm -hmm. Saturday, she sold way more volume of sales, not just more revenue, but way more volume than she did at the event the prior year. So she kept the price at $8 because remember price is an indicator of quality price is part of the marketing mix, right? It's part of what you want to think about tells people this is a high-end product if you're priced higher. If you're someone selling you a Lamborghini car for $10,000, you're like, ah, something's going to be wrong with it. <laughs> Noah, I, I know that we often get a lot of this measurement thing. So it can be kind of nuanced about knowing what to measure, how to measure, what to watch. And you gave us a couple good benchmarks, which I think are really great. And I know that this email list building this list building is as you said it's the gold standard um do you have any kind of insights or recommendations of, of how to you know appropriately think about your email list and scaling it as a kind of young or growing company um if i'm at you know 500 today is it you know reasonable to say hey i'm gonna get to five thousand in a year or um and my open rate should be x or do you have any kind of guidance for how i as a business owner i can think about those components of my strategy yeah i mean a couple of thoughts come to me there so uh, i mean as far as the specific question of like if i have 500 people can i get to 5000 in a year most of the time, I like to say anything's possible, but it, it, you have certain constraints, right? So it's like, well, how are you building awareness? How much money are you spending on building awareness? Or how much time and energy are you spending on building awareness? If you're doing seven farmer's markets a week and spending $1,000 a month on, on, on advertising, you know, you like to, I like to think that you're going to be signed and, and you're signing people up for your email list at events in a very compelling way, like offering them to win some years. We used to do a year supply of fudge and we'd go leave an event with 300 new email addresses. 
you know, so it's, it's like, again, it's like you, your goals, are they achievable or not? It depends on your strategy, on your tactics, on your planning and your marketing budget. Um, so that's part, part of an answer to what you're asking. I think the other, the other thing that came to me is that, you know, when I mentioned before thinking about the funnel or the, the, the buyer's journey, as some people call it, like going from strangers who don't know you don't yet know, like, and trust you. Right. Cause remember people will only order or buy from you if they trust you. So you have to first take them through this journey of knowing about you because they can't trust you if they don't know about you liking you because they're not going to trust you if they don't like you and then trusting. So how do you measure how many people know about you? How do you measure how many people like you and how many people buy from you? Presumably their customer, they must have trusted you enough to open up their wallet or their person spend money on your offering. Well, one of the simplest ways I recommend is just a simple spreadsheet. I mean, you can get fancy with like marketing dashboards and all sorts of cool stuff. But I think every small business person who's hopefully listening to this should have some sort of dashboard. And it could be a simple spreadsheet. Heck, it could be a notebook if you want. But something that just says like, here are the things we're going to look at in terms of numbers besides just our sales. To, to make sure we're keeping our finger on our pul- on the pulse of how we're doing with with marketing, it's like a scoreboard for your marketing team. So so and I usually I usually literally structure that spreadsheet or that in that dashboard in in the same kind of funnel like way. So you start with strangers, and then you go down to friends and customers. So within the stranger section. The question is like, how much web traffic are you getting? Or you, I guess you could think about like how many people are passing through the farmer's markets that don't stop at your booth to say hello, right? Like that might be harder to measure. But with websites, it's easier to measure, right? You can, you can go on Google Analytics and see how many unique visitors, not total traffic per pages, but unique visitors did your website get in, that, in the last month, in, in the prior month. That's a good starting number, right? And the more traffic you get, the better. Assuming you want to grow. And then as you go down the dashboard, then you can say, okay, well, how many friends do we have? Well, let's just add up our total audience size. So we have this many people on Facebook, this many people who like us on or follow us on Instagram, whatever social platforms you're using, Twitter, Pinterest, whatever. There's our total social audience size and we know that there'll be some duplication but the total audience standard is just here's everything aggregated yeah yeah it's not it's not perfect science right it's it's just an indicator of how how many people i think of it as like a tent like you have a big party tent and your brand your company is throwing a big party all the time and it's like how many people are in your tent and they're your friends. They're your brand friends. So, so I kind of lump social audience and email following email list is I separate them on that spreadsheet, but I have the total social audience and then I have the total email subscribers. And then your grand total is your total audience size. And then from friends we move to. So from friends we move to customers. So then the question is how many orders did you get in that month? And again, for e-commerce, it's, easier to measure 
for for if you have a very complex business and you're selling lots of channels, you could look at revenue. So it's not that revenue is not important. It's just that it's not the only thing to pay attention to, right? So what what was our revenue last month? Or if you want to break it out, you could have what was your online revenue? What were your farmer's market sales? What were your wholesale sales? And you would like to think that there's some relationship, right? But if you start seeing more web traffic or more traffic in general, you'll get more friends. And if you start seeing more friends, you'll get more more customers. And then I think there's a, and also by the way, you can also think about like, well, say you have online revenue total and you have, and you know how many orders you, you had, you could do some simple math and you could put in the average order size. So how big of a customer are you getting? Mm -hmm. You know, are you, so that way you could see like, oh, two months ago we had whatever, 52 orders and the average order size was $35 last month we did that extra promotion where we promoted our gift baskets or we did a, you know, Hey, why don't you also add this like suggestive upsells or, you know, maybe you did something and then you want to know, well, did that increase the order size? Well, maybe it did. Maybe your average order size went up uh, to $50 that month and, and you got the same number of orders. So now your revenue is, is higher, right? So paying attention to the number of orders, the number of the, the order size is important and also the number of active customers. Like, are you getting the same number of customers, same group of people ordering every single month or are you actually growing the customer count? So these are kind of like some revenue breakdowns that you can do just to understand your customers because that's important. I would add one other section at the bottom of that funnel, which is be like loyal fans. So now that you have customers, the question is, how many loyal fans do you have? And you, you know, and every every dashboard could be slightly different depending on your business, depending on the goals. But like, you may want to put how many customers do we have that have ordered three times or more? Mm -hmm. And if you're using some, you know, e-commerce system, you, hopefully you can get that data pretty quickly. And and so you know, one month you've you've only have five customers that have ordered three times or more. And then a year later, you've had 50 customers have ordered three times or more. Like that's a good indication of how of loyalty, how frequently your your customers ordering. I appreciate that. Um, and like, walk through the funnel yeah. with some of those um, examples of benchmarks because I think sometimes there's anxiety in uh, what should I measure, which can sometimes prevent you from measuring. And I think it's important to recognize that it's similar to creating that plan. It's like just start measuring and you can add layers yeah. and nuance to what you measure. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, if that's all sounds way overwhelming, do it once a quarter or do it once a year. You know, like do create a scoreboard and keep track of it and have somebody add to it or you do it. <laughs> and and ideally else. put in the conversion points too. Like what percentage of your traffic is converting to audience? What percentage of your audience is converting to customers? You know, so those some of those conversion ratios, just take one number divided by another. Those are interesting numbers sometimes to get insights from. Noah, thanks for sharing that framework, giving us some of those insights into what we should be measuring as we're moving people through the funnel and creating that bigger digital marketing strategy. I think it really helps when we talk through some of that in the context of some examples. And so I know you mentioned prior to starting Taste Profit, you ran a fudge business. And I'm sure 
worked knowing what you know now, um, I'd love to hear you kind of talk us through how marketing kind of manifests in your experience through that business. Yeah, happy to talk fudge um, for sure. So uh, let's see, we we manufactured on a very small scale our uh, handcrafted artisan fudge still exists today. If anyone's hungry or curious, the millfudgefactory.com. Got to mention your website when you properly can, right? That's part of building awareness. <laughs> so, 100%. I, I've. I'm not involved with the fudge business and at this point on a day-to-day basis at all, just just uh, occasional support, but I'm still a third owner in it. Uh, when we started out in 2006, we had an old grist mill right on a little river in a small town of New Hampshire, and I got involved with the renovation of it, and we opened in, in August 2006 as an ice cream scoop shop, and then we had this amazing fudge recipe from my Scottish grandfather, and and that was it. We that was where we started from. So it was a we did not have a business plan or even a marketing plan. It was you know everything you shouldn't do <laughs> in a, a way. But we had good product. What we shouldn't do. So <laughs> I always appreciate when people share those lessons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we but we had good products, and we and well we we con- continued to refine them and get them more and more of higher quality. Uh, so, so that's an important point, right? Is you got to make sure you have something that people are going to want and love and like. Um, but we we ended up realizing pretty quickly that in a small tourist town, we we could sell some good ice cream in the summer months, but the rest of the year, there were barely there were barely any people coming in the door. Uh, so we quickly realized we needed to get our product to other markets. So we decided to start doing farmers markets around the region, and that that worked to some degree. Although we quickly realized that small farmers markets are not worth the effort. Bigger ones where you have a lot more traffic, or even better, big festivals where you have a hundred thousand people, or big county fairs. That's where you really move the needle in terms of awareness building and and revenue. Uh, so. We did a lot of that. We also realized that we needed to get into e-commerce and start shipping our fudge to customers anywhere in the country. So I started learning about online marketing back in 2006 and e-commerce, and we had a you know initial website up, and you know, you should see our first food photos. They were embarrassing, uh, but you got to start somewhere. So you just we just started right and built and learned and grew. And then we started wholesaling. So we did, we, at one point we were, we were in six Whole Foods markets re- locations and about 15 other local retailers. And that worked some, to some degree. And then we also, I mean, we were, we were trying everything, right? So we also tried corporate gifts, which had some success. We ended up selling like 3,000 fudge boxes to Chase Bank, mm-hmm. who knew? For example, like, and then we we did uh, fundraisers too. We realized we could partner with schools and nonprofits, and they could use our fudge to raise money, and that ended up being very successful. And we tried wedding favors, like maybe we could have fudge at people's weddings, mm-hmm. which you know I was at wedding shows and talking to brides, and I was like, that's not not the business we want to be in. Partly because for the most part, people only get married once, and so. You get a you put in a lot of sales effort to get 
uh, you know, a $500 order and then that's it. You know, it's not like they come back again every year, like, like they do with, with some of the other channels. So, you know, we, we monitored our dashboard was super simple in the beginning. We just, we did it on an annual basis and we looked at our sales, total sales per sales channel over time. And we graphed it. I made a little graph showing the lines of where, how it was going. And we quickly realized that wholesale is kind of barely growing and online sales were like vertical almost like they were just taken off and, uh, and corporate gifts also had a lot of potential and fundraisers were going up like crazy. So we decided in, to refine, adjust our strategy and focus on online sales and fundraisers. And, and we also realized that events, festivals, big farmers markets, were a fantastic way to not only build awareness in general of the brand, but but promote our fundraising program. So we had signage at those events about our fundraisers, promote our corporate gifts op options, and promote our e-commerce website. Hey, you like this fudge today? Send it as gifts to people for birthdays or holidays. And and build our email list. And and it was like it was like uh, you know in terms of marketing spend we we were able to be paid to do that marketing because we were also selling product. Yeah. That's one of the cool things about going to these big events is even if you spend a thousand dollars for a booth, if you've got a bunch of people coming in and you're selling your products, it's like free marketing. Uh, can be if it's, if it's the right events and you're in the right markets and you know, your business is appropriate for that. So, so we we kind of refined our strategy and we decided to double down and focus on those areas. Uh, we re redid our website. We got professional photography, food photography with a food stylist. We got a we found a, a couple grants to help offset the cost of those things. We did our branding and our messaging to make sure that our logo was professional, our messaging was unique. My intent with the question was just a parameter for benchmarking your growth before and after you make these changes in your in your strategy. Yeah, I, I mean, the fudge sales definitely grew probably 50% a year. Uh, we ended up you know, selling several hundred thousand dollars of fudge just mostly online. And, and then certainly at events like those, th those can be great, too. But, you know, your, your total dollars is so dependent on your marketing budget, the scale of production. In our case, we were artists in little business with, you know, we didn't have a, a bank loan or major capital being invested. Like we were growing slowly. So it's relative to that. But wow, great learning experience though. And just, I think the point there is just think about which sales channels you want to focus on and which products you want to focus on. Because here's one thing I want to say about strategy. If you find yourself saying no to things on a regular basis, you you might have a strategy. <laughs> yeah. So early on, like people would say, "Oh, do you want to do wedding shows? Sure, we'll try that." Oh, do you want to do this, that, and the other? Yeah, why not? Let's try it. We'll try it. It's just like throwing something against the wall, you know, see what sticks, as they say. We didn't have a strategy, but once we had a strategy, we said, "Okay, no, this is where we're putting our focus." Profit lies in focus. 
hundred percent. And you got to, you have limited time and resources and having that strategy screen allows you to say no. And I love how you framed it. Like if, if you're saying no to stuff, you probably have a strategy. <laughs> it doesn't guarantee you do, but most, you're much more likely if you find yourself saying no to a lot of things that you, you have a strategy. Cause then, you know, you know, just because it's a good opportunity doesn't mean it's a good opportunity for you or your business. Hundred percent. Yeah. And that's why I hate the like, you know, there's, there's some things out there where it's like, oh, this is the right thing for every business. Like, huh, maybe not, you know, let's do a quick, like, what was the biggest mistake you've made or seen made and the biggest lesson learned from either your business or working with others? I think one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is they focus too much on sales and not enough on profitability and gross margins. The expression that Ted LeBeau, founder of KTC, always says is sales are vanity, profit is sanity. So, you, in other words, you might just want to go and sell more. And you know what? In order to get those sales, let's discount, let's discount, let's do 25% off, let's do 30% off just to drive more revenue. And and if you're if you're not careful, you might find yourself in a situation where the more you sell, the more money you lose. And I've seen that happen. So understanding what your gross margins are and understanding the impact that promotional pricing like sales will have on your gross margins and being very conscious about or being very conscientious about what level of discounting you're comfortable doing and is discounting even the right thing for your brand? Maybe it cheapens it. Mm-hmm. Is, is really important. And then, and then the other thing I'd say about gross margins is making sure you're promoting the products that have the highest gross margins. Mm-hmm. Because if otherwise, if you sell twice as many products that are, have a lower gross margins, you could end up reducing your overall profitability because you lower your average gross margin. So much, and I'm assuming people know what I mean by gross margin. But you know, you got your sales minus your cost of goods sold. There's your gross profit. Divide that by your sales. There's your gross margin, right? So it's it's how well are you converting your inputs into to revenue? I could talk about gross margins for a lot longer, but just want to make sure people are familiar with that. I would just add that a common mistake I've seen many food artisans make or food brands that are starting out is they assume they have to be in stores because from a consumer perspective, that's where we buy our food at grocery stores or restaurants. But, you know, we assume we have to sell wholesale because that's what people do. And then you're successful when you're on all these store shelves. It's like, maybe you shouldn't sell wholesale, mm-hmm. you know, because remember you sell wholesale, you're, you have to sell at wholesale prices. You you want to scale wholesale? You got to sell at distributor prices. Your your price gets lower and lower and lower. And and then not not only you have the distributor prices, but you got to pay for things like spoilage and slotting fees and buyback or um, you know cases free cases or uh, discount pricing or all these other costs that that people don't often think about when they're getting into wholesale serious wholesale. Plus, the more you succeed in wholesale, and this is what we realize in the fudge business, the more volume you need. So now suddenly you, you grow out of your space and now you need a bigger building with more overhead costs. And 
you know, you just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't want to go and get another mortgage on more debt. Like I just wanted to grow a nice little business. So we realized that in the fudge business that we didn't want another building. We didn't want more equipment. We could have therefore only produced so much product. And if you're a farm, you may only have so much land. You may not want to buy more land. So you can only produce so much product. And the question is, how do you maximize the profitability from that selling that product? Maybe wholesale is the right thing. Might not be. So just being really careful about your sales strategy before you just dive into either wholesale because you think you should or direct marketing because you think you should. I mean, the flip side of that is we've worked with clients that say, you know, we got to do direct marketing because everyone's doing it. And then we talk to them more. Like there's a dairy farmer we work with that we quickly realized that he didn't. He just wanted to be a farmer. He just, he wanted to drive a tractor. He didn't want to be a marketer. And he and so it, and and there was no reason he had to be if he could make his core dairy farm production business be profitable by being by doing better farming and being better financial manager. He didn't need to go into direct marketing. So really good that back up to making sure you know what your business plan is and what you want as an entrepreneur for growing your business. Because not everybody does want to be that national brand that has an exit strategy. Some folks want to stay local, regional, and that's really going to inform your sales and marketing strategy. And I know each of those on their own can be... Um, if you haven't done one before, if you're redoing one, can be a hard nut to crack but it's just super important and i appreciate you reiterating that because we talk to folks all the time that you need to have a sales strategy a marketing strategy a forecast and they really do inform each other absolutely so it all has to hang together as one cohesive strategy so let's just try you can be my consultant noah in a general broader way i will be a lost entrepreneur i will do my best see what i can do (laughs) guide you (laughs) So, Noah, I think sometimes just setting the stage for what is strategy and how do we think through some of these things in practice can be interesting to illustrate. So I thought it might be fun if I were Sarah of a imaginary company called Hog, who is creating carrot butter out of roasted carrots and macadamia nuts and really looking to grow my business and looking for some digital marketing advice Perhaps we could talk through your schema framework and just kind of see how I might best apply that to to grow my carrot butter business. Sure, sure. No, sounds like fun. I, it sounds delicious. I can't wait to try some. <laughs> it's really nice. But a maple and salt, it's got a little sweet kick to it, but also a little savory, very dippable. I think everyone should love it. And so when it comes to a strategy, you know, I'm really hoping that I can find um, that I can go to a hundred thousand dollars in sales. I'm only at about, you know, 20,000 right now. I'm at farmer's markets and I want to start going into retail and get a hundred thousand dollars in sales. So, um, is that a strategy right there or do I need to do more work? Well, I think I would slow down the question a little bit and say like, well, if you, how did you come up with the goal of saying a hundred thousand in sales? Is that for vanity purposes? Cause you want to have a hundred thousand sales. Or is that, or do you know that you'll have a nice, sane little business if you hit that goal? So do you have a budget that shows you what your margins are and what what kind of gross profits you'll have if you sell 100000 based on your sales channel strategy? And do you understand what other kind of costs you'll need in terms of insurance and marketing and labor and whatever? 
you know, what, what ultimately are you hoping to achieve from this business? Why are you starting this business? You know, what was your career before? Like, so it does get personal a little bit, right? Is to think, to make sure that we understand the context. Those are, those are a lot of good questions. I see that I got to think about more than just my sales growth here if I want to have a strategy. And so let's say that the assumption is that I've got my um, set up in QuickBooks. I have a really good picture on my chart of accounts and what I'm doing right now. And I'm in a commercial kitchen and I'm at a really good initial trial stage of being able to produce at a a rate that I'm making enough money to be okay and that I'm really wanting to prove out the concept to see if I might want to go to a co-packer or grow my sales a lot in the next level. And so this is really my, you know, next phase proof of concept year. And so I'm really looking for that digital marketing strategy to figure out um, how do I go beyond the farmer's market? And kind of the questions you just asked me made me think, oh, I might have just jumped to wholesale and maybe I shouldn't. Um, I should really maybe be looking at online sales first. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so part of the part of the question is if you've done your homework on the financial side and you know that you could sell $100,000 a product wholesale and even at wholesale prices with the demo marketing and things that you want to do, you'll be good. Then maybe you don't need to bother with e-commerce. And you could just use farmers markets and events strategically to drive awareness and drive traffic into stores and be an ally. Because once you get onto store shelves, that's step one. Then you got to get consumers to try your product. That's step two. And then hopefully they love it. And it sounds like people do love your product. So then hopefully they come back and buy it again. That's step three, right? So those are the kind of tests that you have to pass. So have you experimented Let's assume that wholesale makes sense for you for a second. We could, or we you know, we could talk about what you you may want to think about doing e-commerce as well, even if it's not a primary strategy. You could add it as a sort of a secondary offering or a soft strategy, if you will. I, I probably like think- should. I feel like everyone should have an e-commerce strategy in this day and age, and I'll be behind the times if I don't. So that's probably a good a good idea or a good plan. Okay, so you you want to sell online and wholesale. So you've got this great plan to get into these stores. Now you need a digital marketing strategy. It's really simple. Don't don't overcomplicate it. Get a really good website. Get an email marketing platform. Mailchimp is, is one option. Clavio, there's others. Mm-hmm. Start building that email list. That's so central. Make sure you're established on Facebook and Instagram at the very minimum. Make a simple page. Get your logo on there. Have consistent messaging across all of them. Ideally, create a welcome series on your email list so that when people subscribe, they automatically get several emails. We recommend eight welcome emails, educating new subscribers about your product, about your production practices, about your ingredients, about you and your vision, how people can order, where they can find it, etc. And then make sure you're building your email list. Make sure you're driving your audience. Make sure every single stranger you talk to at a demo, at a farmer's market, knows about you hopefully you can move them through that process of liking you and trusting you as soon as possible so they can connect with the brand and it all feeds together and then you can grow your online sales you can support your communication efforts so that make sure that your email audience and your social audience know where to find your product and which stores using digital marketing 
And then you just got to keep growing it, keep improving it, test things, make a calendar of your promotions that you want to try. Uh, maybe test some ads if you want to experiment with that. But make sure you've got your digital foundation, your digital marketing foundation in place first before you pour money on advertising. So it sounds like I've got some content building to do. I've got some planning to do. And as I'm doing that, I should make sure I'm measuring it in those ways that you highlighted before so that I can iterate on it and hopefully get to my ultimate goal of the $150,000. Well, it's not about the revenue goal. It's managing my metrics and then hopefully also seeing that correspond and reflect in my revenue goals as well. Absolutely. I fully believe you can do it, Sarah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Noah. Um, is there anything else you would like to add today? I've heard you mention um, some really great books that you have found really helpful or insightful for this kind of thought process. Yeah. Uh, one book is by Seth Godin, who's a real marketing guru. Many of you may be familiar with he, he's written a bunch of books, but the one that I often recommend to people is, is called permission marketing. And it's from that book, this whole framework of strangers, friends, and customers. I didn't come up with that. That's, that's where I learned that from. Uh, another book that I highly recommend in marketing ways, it's called building your story brand by Donald Miller. Even if you only read the first three chapters and you decide not to implement the system, it will still be helpful. It's all about clarity of your message and how important that is. I always love having um, a couple nuggets like that. And I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your insights and some best practices and some tips. And I know um, we are really appreciate the work you do at Taste Profit and Kitchen Table Consultants and look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Love to stay in touch and appreciate you having me on. This has been great fun. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.